Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work. What a show we have for you today. Bernie Madoff and John Maynard Keynes. Now, if that doesn't get your juices flowing, try and figure out this riddle. Who cost more people more money? Who should we believe? Who's the authority? Who do you trust? A lot of people in government are trusting Keynesian economics. It's almost like Kleenex. Nobody knows what it means. I say nobody because there are people who think that it's part of the problem and people who are following policies that make it the solution. What's the little guy to make of it? I don't know. But if the stock market is any measure, then we're on the same road that those people who invested with Bernie are, which is it appears to be working. The market is back. The fundamental, it doesn't make sense. There may be a common sense element to this, which is what Hunter Lewis will go on about, that that's what John Maynard Keynes defied, and that is common sense. And in some measure, that's what Brian Ross is talking about in his book, The Madoff Chronicles. Bernie led a lot of people on. Didn't make sense, but that didn't stop them from investing because they liked the returns. If the end justifies the means, then you buy Bernie until you fall off a cliff. And you buy Keynes until we're in another recession, if not depression. All depends on how you look at it. And we help you find out that opinion by listening to McLaughlin at work. Thanks for joining me. Here we go. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work, management, leadership, and employment. Speaking this afternoon on all three in certain matters, uh, Brian Ross, friend, colleague, and good to McLaughlin at work by providing interviews when he has material, and boy, does he have material today. The Madoff Chronicles, Brian's new book, Inside the Secret World of Bernie and Ruth Madoff, Brian Ross, my guest, chief investigative correspondent of ABC News. Brian, your first book, you're on TV, you're an award winner, you've taken over blogging on the web in an investigative matter. This sort of rounds out the media, does it not? Appearing on your program certainly does. <laughs> Appearing, I like that. That's because we have embedded media, so we have pictures of you as well. Very well exactly. put. Thank you. No, it was a uh, actually the first time I had written a book, and I found it, uh, at first I was a little bit worried could I actually write a book, because my writing generally is a, a minute and a half on world news, maybe on a good day, uh, 10 or 12 minutes on 2020, but uh, actually it came easily, and it was uh, it was fun, because it gave me the space and the time to explore and provide the caveats and the context and get in some of the funnier parts of uh the sad story, the tragic story of uh, Bernie Madoff and, and what he did to his family and his friends and uh, lots of people he didn't know, but was quite pleased to hurt. You're, you're never without material, but Bernie certainly did provide you with uh, a mother load. He really did, and we were able to get some rare access uh, to people who were very close to him and to his wife, Ruth, uh, who spoke in part because they thought it might actually paint a clearer picture of uh, Bernie and Ruth and and their sons. Uh, questions remain about the role of, of uh, Bernie's family in this uh, massive uh, scheme that you know, robbed so many people. And that access really gave me the, um, 
I guess the incentive to write this because we had material that just was never going to make it on the, on the ABC News and I thought was uh, worthy of uh, people knowing. Did you say that you, it was a daunting task to write a book? Um, I know firsthand that you are a writer of the material that you put, put on television and very careful about that. Writing a book is different? It is. Uh, it's, it's a blank page, and there's no limitation on, on space, really. It's a question of uh, making sure it remains interesting. You don't get boring. You get caught in the weeds. But at the same time, you have the space, and people who are going to buy a book, uh, they're looking for extra details and insights that you don't necessarily get in, in the minute-and-a-half version. The big question is I, that I have is, how did he do it? I still don't understand how he could have fooled sophisticated people so how did he do it? Well, there are a, a couple of components that are, are important. Uh, one, he played hard to get with his clients, his investors. Uh, two, he was a consummate liar. He could lie to uh, them, to uh, a widow. He could lie to, we're sitting here in my office, so we get interrupted sometimes. But he was able to really fool so many people because people would say he was a sociopath. He had no conscience, and it was easy for him to lie. So he lied to the investors. He lied to the government. And if you believe him, and it's likely he, he lied to his own family about what was going on. But he has a small group on the 17th floor of his office building here in New York, a core group of people who were paid four, five, seven times more than the going rate for the jobs they did. These were people who had never gone to college, came out of uh, the neighborhoods uh, in Queens, and were known as chief financial officers and top investment advisors. And their job was essentially to phony up uh, statements that were mailed out once a month uh, to uh, Madoff's investors. And because it appeared to his investors they were getting a steady 12 to 20% return every year, year in, year out, nobody ever withdrew money. You know, in a Ponzi scheme, the problem is you, you invest money, you're getting good returns. Now, the scammer has to keep the thing growing because you got to keep paying off the investors. The new investors provide the money for the, uh, the early on investors. And in this case, um, he targeted particularly elderly, retired um, Jewish uh, people living in the Catskills in Florida. And they just took the little interest they thought they were getting. And when they died, the thing was rolled over to the next generation. Uh, and when the market was bad, people would actually put more money in to Madoff's accounts because they thought he was, the only guy, he was the only guy who knew what he was doing. Everybody else was losing money. I'm putting my money with Bernie. So by targeting certain people who had a lot of money and didn't necessarily have to pull it out to cover other investments or felt that the whole thing was going south, with Bernie it felt like a safe haven. And they were reassured of this safe haven again and again. You know, the SEC investigated, found there was no problem. Uh, his returns were always there. You know, Bernie had a system. Now, my own theory is there was another element here. You can't really con an honest man, you know. Many of these people, the really sophisticated, smart folks, the kind that listen to your program and are, you know, deeply involved in finance. And, and, and the people who were advisors. Advisors, and especially. So it was sort of a double up. Yes. They, I think, believed Bernie was breaking the law, but not in the way he was actually breaking the law. They believed he was doing something called front-running. And front-running is when you know you have a big order for a sell or a buy. 
you put your own order. Financial markets now. Financial markets. You put your own order in ahead, so you're almost guaranteed to make money because you know somebody's going to buy a million shares, you buy your 100,000 ahead of them, and the million coming after that drives it up, or if you're selling, the same thing works. And front running is illegal, but kind of winked at on the street. Uh, it's now in electronic trading and the like. There's yeah. such a volume going yeah, exactly. through it to see if you. It's hard it to enforce, but in general, people thought, you know, Bernie's got a system, quote unquote. Uh, maybe he was front running. Maybe he's breaking the law. But if he gets caught, it's his problem, not mine. I'm still making my money. I got my sheet right here. I have this statement printed out. This shows what I have. People believe that, as you, most people do. You get your monthly statement. I do for the bank. I assume that's it's there. And that, I think, was a key there, that the sophisticated investment advisors sort of thought that Bernie was doing something shady. They never imagined, I don't think, that they were the targets of the scam. They thought that they're beneficiaries of the scam. You know, I liken it in the book to, if you think about the, the sting, where you know, Newman and Redford take on the, uh, the savvy gambler. And he sees they've got a system, and they're breaking the law. He's going to take advantage of it, not realizing he was the target of the whole setup, of the whole state. And essentially, these people, I think, felt the same way. So they were suspicious of Bernie, but felt that at the worst case, he might go to jail or be wrapped on the knuckles by the SEC, but they weren't going to be affected in any way. They couldn't get back to them. And I think that's how he did it. But the nuts and bolts part, they churned out these documents uh, and made off with his right-hand man, Frank D. Pascali, who's now uh, pleaded guilty to charges. D. Pascali and he... They'd keep records of the trading of how stocks closed every day. Then once a month or so, they'd get together and say, all right, we bought this on this day, we bought this on this day. They always managed to uh, sell a stock at its high for the month. And they always managed to buy a stock at its low for the month. So that's just not good luck. They, they knew what they were doing. This is like you're, you're stealing a signal yeah, from the second yeah. basement. Uh, if you're able to bet on a horse after the race is over and you know who uh, wins, uh, you're in good shape. And that's what they were doing. That's why they were, appear to be such geniuses. And that's what they do. Now, they made some mistakes. Sometimes they record trades on federal holidays on a Saturday when there were no such trades. They got a little sloppy here and there. But for the most part, they got away with it. And the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, investigated them five or six times. And every single time, while they were close, they always took his word for what he said. He has recounted how uh, they came on a Friday, and it was the closest call he had. This is 2005, I believe. And uh, they said, all right, where are the actual stocks that you hold? The billions of dollars worth of stocks. Where, where are they right now? He said, they're being held at the Depository Trust Company, DTC. Stone. And he figured uh, they would go there Monday morning and find there were no such stocks. And that by Monday night, he'd probably be in handcuffs. It was a bad weekend for him. They never went. They just took his word. Had they gone, this thing would have been over a long time ago. At the time, he estimated he had $20 billion in the bank. He would have made good at least uh, probably two-thirds of the money people had invested. So the, uh, the fault, there's a lot of fault and blame here, but the SEC hardly comes out of this looking like a decent investigative government regulatory agency. He, in some measure, he's really the father of electronic trading That's as right. well. I mean, he, he knew, he almost in the... In the Shell and P game, he was the one who had invented the P right. and invented the Shell, and he knew how to cover it up. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he really 
he really designed and, and brought the NASDAQ almost to to the, the prominence that it has. He got credit for it. Uh, the fact is it was his younger brother, Peter, who did yeah, really. that. Bernie had a hard time with a computer. He was really? no computer genius, even though he gets credit for essentially revolutionaries. And, um, so he did. He was not the... He was, was his was brother, he? Peter. But he was... Uh, that's its own uh, tragedy there within their relationship. Peter was never made a partner or an equity partner. He was an employee at all times. Never Madoff brothers. It was Bernie Madoff. He treated Peter badly, uh, but it was you know. And it's, at the same time, he'd buy him a new sports car, but he could treat him badly. He'd berate him in front of other people. Hmm. And Peter was the one who had the idea for using computers to revolutionize trading. Mm-hmm. Bernie took the credit for it. But the fact is, Madoff, the Madoffs, did use computers to great advantage. And what is so strange about that is. Yet the computer techs we talked to say he had the oldest computer down on that 17th floor you could imagine. And we kept saying, you can't, nope, don't touch that thing. Do not touch that thing. Because it was programmed to do exactly what he wanted to do. He didn't want to bring anybody else in to program it again because it was set to churn out the false documents. And that's, uh, he didn't, it was an old computer. That the tech guys said, this makes no sense at all. Everything else in the whole place was high tech. Bernie was anal compulsive. He was black and gray and sleek and the latest and the greatest, except for the key computer down on the 17th floor. Everything the upstairs. Machine. <laughs> the machine. Everything upstairs, neat. Nothing could be left on a desktop at night. Uh, you had a picture frame. You were allowed to have one frame, a picture on your desk, with uh, a frame approved by Madoff. You couldn't just bring in your own picture frame. The 17th floor, as someone said, looked like your crazy aunt's uh, basement. It was loaded with stuff, and papers were here and there, and that was the real heart of the business. And that's where he made all his money. It was right down there. He did not make money with his legitimate trading operation. Did you actually speak with Bernie? I never have spoken with Bernie. I have not spoken with Bernie. Uh, he hasn't spoken to any reporters, but I've spoken with people who were very close to him and were particularly close to him after his arrest. I mean, we've talked to his, you know, people who went to high school with him and were in the business with him. We talked to the guy who was his marijuana uh, messenger, uh, talked to people who were around him, his longtime secretary uh, talked with us at length and provided us lots of documents. Never talked to Bernie. In the, the among the people that you you speak about in in your journalistic endeavors, who was Bernie Madoff like? In some ways, he seemed to be a little bit of a recluse. Uh, close friends. Very few close friends. And it's hard to hard to hard to put a handle on him. What kind of guy he was, but you know, certainly selfish, um, and uh, a bit of a bully in the office. Uh, but all bullies are cowards, you know, and he, he had his fears. He told someone close to him that he started doing the scam within the first couple of years of going into business in the early 1960s, and that for the first year or so, he hardly slept at night. He was very worried. And then he realized, I can do this. And from then on in, it just grew and grew and grew. So it's almost the opposite of somebody getting in too deep. He found that the deep end worked for him. Right. And of course... Uh, as a sociopath might, uh, when he was uh, entering his guilty plea, he essentially blamed the victims. The, they were the ones who kept making these unrealistic demands. They're the ones. He just couldn't figure out a way to get out of it. I mean, if only they hadn't been so demanding of him, this never would have happened. He would have gotten out of it. But, of course, with a scam like that, there is no exit strategy because you can't ever come clean. 
And someone asked him that after he'd been arrested. What, what's going to happen? How did you figure you're going to get out of this? And he said, I just thought I'd die or there'd be a nuclear war or it would just all end. He had no real exit strategy. Person speaking, obviously, for those who, who know his voice from television, Brian Ross, chief investigative uh, correspondent for ABC News, who is coming out with a book of, uh, about Bernie Madoff inside the secret world of Bernie and Ruth entitled The Madoff uh, Chronicles, and it includes Bernie's little black book, a sort of come on to uh, on the cover to get people to, to buy the book and get inside. I did not see your name. Nope. In nope. The M- McLaughlin at work, not even misspelled. <laughs> not even not, misspelled. Not, not, <laughs> even, not even phonetically, uh, phonetically close. And Brian and I have talked about a number of issues uh, over the years um, as his own career has developed and gone, I say developed, I came to it late, but as he went on the web and, and now has written this book on one of his uh, subjects. And it, it's tough, I guess, to, um, to draw lessons from, from this. I think you sort of uh, have a tendency to form certain, they're not judgments, but they're observations. Uh, what, what, what are the lessons? What's it all about, Bernie? What, what, uh, what's what it all about, Bernie? Uh, I, in the end, I guess it is who can you trust? Uh, and some simple lessons that you think everyone would know, but you know, if a deal seems too good, it probably is. It's very hard to turn down steady returns. I mean, lots of other people on Wall Street. When it is money in the bank. These yeah, are well, presumably, and, and, not, you know, there were paper entries. It's but money they, in the bank. It's money that is on paper. Here is the statement. It, it looked good. It was good paper. Came every month. There it was. I could see if I'm up or down. And they had all sorts of trades listed. And, you know, I, I know I get statements like that myself. I don't really pay much attention because I'm not sure what I'm really looking at in terms of how could I authenticate that. Turns out it was the same thing for the big big shots in Wall Street. Some of the major players, uh, they were on to him. They had run the numbers and concluded that what he was doing was impossible. Yeah, you and can get that. Proof positive that there's always breaking news here in the world of investigative, <laughs> investigative journalism, whether you're tracking down a dry hole or whether something is uh, thing happening. Yeah. It's, it's always there. We were talking about uh, Madoff and the big firms. Uh, many of them realized something was wrong there. And they would get new clients and tell them, we're taking your money out of Madoff. Uh, there were a couple of uh, pools, given the black humor on the street, they have a fraud pool. And uh, they would put uh, Madoff into it. You know, like, who's going to be uh, arrested next? And he was high on the list there. Hmm. They were on to this. You know, Madoff would never take, for instance, if you were going to invest with him, you couldn't transfer stocks you held from somewhere else into Bernie. He just wanted cash. Interesting. So if you own the stocks, I'm going to put all my, everything with Madoff. He would say, close it out, cash it out, and give me the cash. Now, that's very unusual. Very unusual. And for most people, would say, like, what the heck is that all about? Well, and I guess it comes back to one of, the, one of my theories in, in talking to people and in, in businesses now over the years is there certainly is that club mentality. Right. And um, once you're in the club, you've got a vocabulary of the club. You've got a special... Uh, connection to the people who have been in the club, particularly if the club's been around for for a while. And he was um, a prime player in working the club for for all that it was worth. And I guess the corollary to that is that people will not investigate good news 
<laughs> right. Very careful. Uh, I'm happy with what I'm getting. Yeah. <laughs> like Brian Ross yeah, here right. at ABC News. Good news only goes, happy right, birthday right, right, is, yeah. is, a, is a very short investigation. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but when you've got bad news, people will go in the, uh, in, in the other direction. So he was sort of the prime purveyor of good news. Yeah, and, and who's and, to say w- what's the good news all about, Bernie? As I said before, and and the hard to get aspect, uh, you can't underestimate uh, how that was used to help sell it. People would be pleading, "Can you get me in with Bernie?" I don't know. I don't know. He's very particular about who he takes. Don't ask him too many questions now. If you want to be in with Bernie, you've got to be there. And a number of people made a lot of money appearing to be the brokers who had the clout to get Bern- to get in with Bernie. Can you get me in with Bernie? Uh, at his country club down in Palm Beach, the Palm Beach Country Club. That was a big deal. And there are a couple of guys that made a lot of money by being the doorkeepers to get in with Bernie. You got me in with Bernie. That's great. And they, and they called him sort of the, you know, the Jewish uh, T-bill because it was so reliable and so regular. And so reliable and so regular that that was a club that everybody wanted to join. Right, and, and within uh, the Palm Beach Country Club, there was sort of like the elite inner circle people who were able to get in to be with Bernie. And, of course, on the day of his arrest, uh, the maitre d' reported that there were shrieks and tears and, oh, my God, just crying uh, in the lunchroom that afternoon because most of the people had millions of dollars invested with Bernie, and it was all gone. And when you mean when it was all gone, it really was all. It's really all gone. It was. Uh, there it might created. be, they might have maybe a billion dollars they can put together from various places. How much was totally lost? About. If you took all the statements, monthly statements, as of November of last year, just before the thing was shut down, it would add up to about sixty-five billion dollars that people thought they had. Okay, that's what they thought they had. Because this came out of the computer. Out of the computer. The aggregation of the computer. All his, 17. all the stuff he'd been thrown in there for years, and they presumably still in the hard right. drive. Uh, the government's best estimate is that the money actually put in, the capital in, was about $20 billion, still a lot of money. And that is gone. Strangely, he kept a lot of records. There were several sets of books. But what they've tried to do is go through, uh, in terms of you know, uh, restitution on a cash-in, cash-out. So some people put in, say, a million dollars, and if they took out $100,000 a year over 15 years, they took out more than they put in, the government's position is, and therefore they might actually owe a half million back, as they, <laughs> <laughs> they call the clawback. Now, there was an individual who, had, who was onto this. There was. Took it as far as he possibly could, in fact, sort of self-exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Harry Markopoulos, uh, whose boss said, why can't we match what Madoff is doing? It was more like envy, like we're losing customers to Madoff. And he began to investigate with his uh, partner, and they ran the numbers, and they kept this is impossible. There's no way he's doing this. And they, he's got a complicated uh, strategy of trading that he claimed to have had, and they, even using what he said, said this is, this is impossible. If you took him at his word, you know, on one particular day, he'd have to own one half of all Coca-Cola stock, for instance. He didn't. He would have been using more options uh, on the Chicago Board of Exchange than there were in a whole day. It couldn't be. It just didn't make sense. And he wrote notes and protests and letters to the SEC in Boston and New York again and again. And they dismissed him pretty much as a kook. Now, part of that was that he also added in, and you have to come to this because Madoff may kill me if he discovers that. You know, and people thought, oh, please, give me, give me a break here. 
but in fact he was onto it and it was um in 2005 they finally opened an investigation of madoff based on markopoulos's complaints and what happens first thing uh they go and interview madoff and uh he lies and they catch him in a lie uh, they go to interview one of his major uh, feeder funds, Fairfield Greenwich Group, and he actually briefs them what to say to the SEC. So, and they become aware of that, and they become aware that Madoff lied to them. And even so, they never pursued it, and they closed out the case and said no evidence of fraud. And it's an outrageous conclusion, and it's uh, incompetence would be almost the kindest way to describe what happened. No one has found evidence of payoffs or corruption in the SEC, and the SEC Inspector General has looked at that and told me there's just no evidence of that. So if that's the case, then you have to assume that the government, grossly incompetent, and all those people for years who counted on the government to make sure that the traders and the brokers are honest and you can trust them, they failed in their jobs so incredibly miserably. Did the IRS ever go after him? The IRS never did go after him. Uh, and it's not clear he ever filed a corporate tax return. They can't find one now. <laughs> can't find one. Can't find one. Hey, excuse me. Yeah. Brian Ross can't find one either. Uh, <laughs> investigative chief looking. investigative reporter for ABC News. Uh, it, it, it's an astounding story. Because usually the IRS is is one of the ways they right, they but, back but into as, these stories. As you pointed out, Bernie Madoff was a big deal on Wall Street. He often dropped names about his connections in high places, and people were afraid to go after him. They accepted his explanation. If they had said, we're going to just check out what he said and go see if they actually have those stocks held there in custody for uh, Madoff, uh, they would have found out they didn't, and he was a liar. But no one ever did that. And would the SEC ever turn over to the IRS um, that kind of investigation, or is that sort of a Chinese wall between government no. agencies? Uh, it is from the IRS to others but not into the IRS. Or its referrals can be made to the IRS. I see. The IRS treats the information from taxpayers in a confidential way. It's, they have to have all kinds of special uh, clearances before they actually refer it, even for a prosecution. But they would not generally share that information with anybody but prosecutors. But he li and he did live uh, quite a high lifestyle. He did. Particularly he, in the latter years. He really, uh, and he, he, had a, he adopted a kind of uh, old money uh, that's how he carried himself, you know, uh, in manners of dress and uh, style of decorations in the apartment. He had a glorious uh, two-story penthouse here in New York. And that you were able to film him through a window. We did get across the street quite a distance and saw him there when he was under house arrest. It was a glorious house arrest. He had a, a weekend summer house uh, out in the Hamptons in Montauk that just sold for north of $8.75 M Much, I understand, to the distress of some of the neighbors whose houses are for sale <laughs> that don't have, the, don't have the particular notoriety. Yeah, that one sold because it got a lot of attention everywhere. Uh, and then there was, of course, the Winter uh, House in Palm Beach, another great place on the water down there on the Intercoaster Waterway. And then, of course, you had to have a place in France, and he had a villa there with his, um, I guess, 85-foot-long uh, yacht called the Bull. He, that was his personal motif. He had stuffed bulls in the office, bulls on the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, his other boats were called the Sitting Bull, the Little Bull, the Bull Two, and you know, people would say he was uh, he was a master of the bull. But 
Uh, that, that was his lifestyle, and he had um, he lived about 12 blocks in the office, but he had a fleet of black Cadillacs taken back and forth so he could be like the big boys. How does his story end? Well, I mean, how does your book end? Where, where the book ends it? with uh, Bernie off to uh, prison. Okay. Where, uh, North Carolina? Is in North it, Carolina, Carolina where he Carolina. seems to be doing quite well, fitting in quite well. Uh, the last person to see him that we've talked to said he looked like he's working out and looking pretty buff. The book, The Madoff Chronicles, Inside the Secret World of Bernie and Ruth, written by the individual who conducted a large portion of the visible investigation of Bernie Madoff, Brian Ross, Chief Investigative Correspondent for ABC News. Brian, congratulations on your first book. Well, thank you much, Paul. Thanks for having me on to talk about it. And uh, we look forward to hearing more about the book, and we'll follow Bernie with uh, renewed interest. Thanks much. So that was Brian on Bernie, and now we're going to turn to Hunter on John, Brian Ross on Bernie Madoff, and Hunter Lewis on John Keynes. What's the connection between Bernie and John to be parochial? I don't think they call him Johnny. Bernie Madoff duped a lot of people in a Ponzi scheme and cost a lot of people a lot of money. John Keynes espoused a economic philosophy put down in 1936, which was in part a reaction, as we will learn from Hunter Lewis, in part a reaction to the Victorian aversion to debt, and he took a different position, different posture. And governments, including ours, both Democratic and Republican, world governments, institutions have been following what Keynes said. And if either, he is either the reason for the growth and the substantial progress that we have made economically, as well as responsible for the policies of today, which some feel are ill-advised. They were ill-advised when Keynes wrote them, and they're ill-advised today as they are the basis of our economic stimulus package. Hunter Lewis has an opinion, and you're going to hear it right now. Where Keynes went wrong and why world governments keep creating inflation, bubbles, and bursts. Uh, Hunter, welcome back to McLaughlin at Work. Nice to be back with you. Keynes is very much in the news these days. Uh, your book is timely. Why both of the why are both of those facts true? Well, Keynes, I, I consider Keynes's ideas to be the bubble behind the bubble. You know, we had the dot com bubble, we had the housing bubble, we had the government rescue, which it, itself could be characterized as a kind of bubble. But all of this is coming out of Keynes's ideas and the mistaken policies that, that result from his ideas. And so I would characterize his ideas as an, an intellectual bubble. An intellectual bubble. It's an interesting thought, and, I, and I, I'm guided a little bit, and, and you and I discussed this when we met this afternoon. I'm guided a little bit by the review that was provided by uh, the book reviewed in the Wall Street Journal just this week, interestingly enough. 
Um, and it, it, it is uh, a book by somebody that you're quite familiar with. Yes, indeed. And that is? That's the Skidelsky book. Skidelsky is the leading biographer of Keynes. He wrote a three-volume biography of Keynes, which is an ex- excellent book. And then uh, that's been recently condensed into one volume, and now he's written another book about Keynes. Uh, he is, of course, uh, a proponent of Keynes. To me, one of the interesting things about his three-volume biography of Keynes is that he's very honest in recounting some of the things about Keynes that don't make sense, where Keynes is being illogical and so on. But after recounting these things, he just sort of skips ahead and says that Keynes is right anyway. Uh, That's not uncharacteristic of Keynesianism. It's all a bit of a leap of faith. It's not really grounded in logic or evidence. And the Keynesianism that's being pursued right now by the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, and so on, it's a leap of faith. Now, on the heels of both Harvard and Yale, I'm going to come back a little bit to your background, uh, both Harvard and Yale losing a fair amount of money in the market uh, of, over, the, over, the last, uh, over the last year, you were uh, an early guide, if you will, on investment in the university community, is that correct? And that's correct. Could you explain that a little bit? Because I think well, that I, puts I, your comments here in, 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 if not in relief, at least in perspective. Well, I, I co-founded a firm called Cambridge Associates, which advises universities on their investments, and that started in the mid-1970s. And my colleagues, along with many people in universities, developed a style of investing which became, which was called the university style of investing which became very successful. So American universities went from being at the time of the 1970s, sort of the also-rans in investment, not doing so well, to being the stars of the investment world. Uh, They have done better than any other institutions around the world over that long period of time. And although, of course, uh, 2008 was a setback, like for everybody else, the records of the universities are still very good over the long term, still better than any other pool of institutional capital in the world. And what was uh, what did Cambridge Associates do to set the university investment strategy on a new path? Well, what what's called the university style of investing is is fairly simple. It involved a diversification into a great variety of different sorts of investments, particularly equities. So that instead of just being stocks and bonds and cash, as you were in the mid 1970s. We, and along with many others, developed this style of a much more broadly diversified approach using all sorts of different equities and and so on, private equity, venture capital, real estate, foreign securities, as well as domestic. And uh, that, uh, as I say, that succeeded very well. We also reduced the amount of bonds in the portfolio as part of that. So going into alternative asset classes, which, as we know, later people learned, and you knew at the time, they were more risky and therefore had a higher rate of return because of the risk associated with them. Well, they're, they're not necessarily more risky. It, it depends. Venture capital is certainly more risky than common stocks, but uh, some of the alternative investments are not more risky per se. Uh, some of them involve um, a degree of illiquidity, and that's been one of the primary issues for universities in the last year is that they've um, discovered that they need more liquidity than they thought. Um, with your indulgence, I'd like to depart and, and make a comparison here that I've longed to 
I've just finished reading uh, Practicing Catholic by James Carroll, uh, which is a a uh, exposition, if you will, along former Paulist priest uh, James Carroll's philosophy. Um, and part of that goes to comparing Keynes' th uh, general theory book, written, as I understand it, in, in roughly 1936. Uh, yeah, it was published in 1936. Um, and, and comparing that sort of to the English version of the Bible, in which we now are trying to interpret it the, as the Old Testament and the New Testament, and how, in this case, taking Carroll's book at Practicing Catholic, how the Catholic Church is now out of step or in step, depending on how one looks at it. Why is it that what Keynes wrote in 1936, and leaving aside the Depression recession because Keynesian economics has been part of us through the boom period as well, um, how would you compare the Bible to general theory in terms of how it should be thought about in today's economy, in today's global, uh, global situation, if you will? Compare those two for me. Well, the, the idea that Keynes would somehow be a Bible for economics? Yes. Hmm. And so, and so the, the, sort, of the, sort of the circumstances under which he developed his theories are those circumstances such that they become immutable, that they are, as you called it, a leap of faith as opposed to science, much like to some, the Bible and the Old Testament is a leap of faith, now written in English, it wasn't written that way, women, um, all the things that are associated now with a more established culture simply didn't exist. So how much of it, of, how much should we believe, in your opinion, of what Keynes wrote simply because he, he, he put these general theories together in 1936 and obviously formulated them in the four or five years before that at least. Why is he still held in such high regard? Well, and the, the thing that comes to my mind is, you, you remember the early church father, the Christian church father, who said, I believe because it is impossible. Uh, so obviously Christianity was based on faith. Um, Keynes actually has some parallels with that. Uh, Keynes' thought follows a particular path in which he almost takes every item of conventional wisdom or common sense and he turns it on its head. It, uh, it's almost formulaic the way he does that. So for example, he will say, you thought that in order to get rich, you have to save and invest. Actually, you have to spend. We have to spend. It's spending that makes us rich. The we, not collectively. We, we collectively, yes. yes. Um, it's, it's spending that makes us rich, not saving an investment. In, in the same way, when you have a crash, such as we had caused by too much debt, it's, it's not exactly common sense to think that you can get out of that by adding even more debt. And yet that's exactly what Keynes recommends. So he's very counterintuitive and tends to defy common sense. One of my questions is, is the common sense of circa early 1930s, is that still common sense? Well, I, I think it is. I mean, for, for example, doesn't it strike you as common sense that if you've gotten into trouble because the Federal Reserve has printed so much money and reduced interest rates so much and that has blown up a bubble, doesn't strike you as common sense to suggest that more of the same would just get you into deeper trouble. So I, d I don't think that common sense per se changes. I mean, we're human beings. We have our common sense. 
And what anybody like Keynes who comes along and turns it all on his head has to explain is why common sense is wrong, which he did not do. He didn't even try to do it. Uh, Keynes is very hard to read. It's very dense material. There, there are passages which are magical and witty and brilliant, and they get quoted a lot, but most of it is very hard to read. If you actually read it carefully, you will see that he does not prove any of his propositions. He's really throwing out his own intuitions, which are counter-commonsensical, and you're expected to sort of pick them up or you don't. He even said at one point, economics is one intuitive mind speaking to another intuitive mind. So he wasn't even so interested in proving what he was saying. But Keynes is full of paradoxes. The most famous Keynesian paradox is called the paradox of thrift. Please tell us and about that. And that is that people should save and they should for themselves, but that if we all try to save at the same time, it will actually just create an economic problem. And so when we get into a recession, we should not try to save. Now, I take exactly the contrary view, which is that if you have a problem that over the years you haven't saved enough, you've been spending too much, you've been borrowing too much, it's past time to go on with the remedy, which is to start saving more and spending less, which is exactly contrary to what Keynes recommends. And the Keynesian paradox of thrift is just taken for granted by everybody. Of course it's true, because everybody says it's true, because we've been taught it. There's no good logical grounds for it, but nevertheless it just is the prevailing wisdom now. Is it true that capitalism in its very nature, as I've heard said, will create, capitalism will create bubbles and bubbles will have to burst, but that the fact that it will re resettle over time because excesses will always creep into the growth formula? Well, I don't believe that, but and there is some basis for it because, of course, human beings do tend to be manic and depressive at times, and that gets reflected in economic cycles, and so we get greedy or we get fearful. Sure, that's, that's all part of the equation. But the real reason that we have bubbles and busts is because the government at certain times prints too much money, gets too much debt going. They, they print the money, that reduces the interest rates. People borrow too much. Wall Street especially gets the money first, gets the cheap money first, makes a lot of money from it, re-lends it to other people. And that's what basically creates the bubble and that's what then leads to the bust. That's what happened in the 1920s. That's how we got the Great Depression. That's what happened in the dot-com bubble. Again, it was primarily because of the Federal Reserve. Um, we, people today, I mean, if you say, why did we have the crash of 08? The usual answer is, well, Wall Street got greedy. That's what George W. Bush said. But what they don't consider is that Wall Street not only got greedy, it got drunk, and it got drunk on the free drinks that were being offered by the Federal Reserve in the form of very cheap money. Money that was much too cheap because too many dollars were being printed. The, the other reason that people say we had the crash is that the regulators were asleep. And I think that's wrong also. The regulators actually made a lot of mistakes in 2007 and 2008, which helped to precipitate the crash when it did. I thought the crash was coming anyway, but it might have come in 2009 or a little later. And as we discussed, you had thought that in your, and, and expressed that in your book. Um, I didn't put it in Are the Rich Necessary? But I certainly was thinking those thoughts in 2007, and I shared them in um, various interviews, probably with you. Well, I remember specifically, and, and I'd like to go back to that book for just a second, because I think it, it puts a spotlight on, on Keynes. You thought that, that there was a very big role for the public sector. And how does, how does that position fold into the crash of 2008? 
in the, in, in the sense that the more the government gets involved in the economy, the more potential there is for corruption. I mean, one of the things that worries me the most is that as the dot-com bubble got going and increased, campaign contributions from Wall Street to Washington increased. As the housing bubble got going, money flowing from, wa from Wall Street to Washington increased. Right after the crash of 2008, the campaign contributions from Wall Street really spiked to Washington. So that um, a marriage of Wall Street and Washington, which we've increasingly had in the last couple of decades, is very worrying because it can lead to the corruption of Washington, or an even greater corruption. We really need to keep it's, it's, we need to keep government out of the economy as much as possible so the government itself doesn't become corrupted. Now, if government is going to stay out of the economy, then you need other supports for people. There are a lot of roles that the government plays right now which are very important in terms of social safety nets, uh, helping the, the poor. I don't think government does a very good job of it because actually there are more subsidies for rich people than there are for poor people, and that isn't right. But uh, poor people should have support. There should be a social safety net. The way to do that is by increasing the nonprofit sector, by growing that instead of by growing ser government services. I mean, that, that was at least the point of view I was presenting in that book. Speaking of politics, where does Keynesian economics play in the political realm? Oh, it's, it's very uh, interesting that, of course, Democrats are devoted Keynesians, but so are Republicans. So I think that at least my criticism of Keynesianism are certainly not partisan in any way. Uh, ben Bernanke was a, is a registered Republican who was initially appointed by George W. Bush. He's the chairman of the Federal Reserve now. He's just been reappointed by Barack Obama. So that uh, what, what is going on is a bipartisan effort in the two parties, and I think both of them are wrong. And Mr. Bernanke's predecessor? Well, of course, that was Alan Greenspan. He was also a registered Republican. And all of our present problems I really attribute to mistakes that Greenspan made as chairman of the Federal Reserve in the 1990s. If, if you go back to the recession of early 1980s, which was really orchestrated by Paul Volcker, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve then, that was a, that was a very difficult move on the, on the Fed's part. It involved a lot of pain. Uh, Paul Volcker was hugely criticized, but it was right. And he really cleaned up the inflation in the 1970s. He liquidated the bad debt that had resulted from the 1970s. And we got a, a long period of prosperity as afterward. And then Alan Greenspan made the mistake of printing too much money, reducing interest rates too much for too long in the 90s, kicking off the dot-com bubble. That's where the trouble started. Paul McLaughlin speaking with Hunter Lewis. The title of Hunter's current book where Keynes went wrong and why world governments keep creating inflation bubbles and bursts. Uh, but bus. Where do we go from here? The, the, tr the trouble is that by, we, we sort of papered over the crisis of 2008. You, you can think of it as uh, a uh, drug addict in effect who was in withdrawal by, by the withdrawal of the drug We've now provided the, the poor addict with more of the drug, so the, dr the, the addict feels better for the moment, but it's not a solution for the long run. And uh, what I worry about is that any diminution of the drug, and the drug in this case is debt, will lead to another crisis. 
given the, uh, we've not only not reduced the amount of debt that we have, which is the ultimate problem that caused the crisis, we have increased the debt. We have increased the growth of the debt. So I think we're just setting ourselves up for another crisis. What, what, uh, what you want to do at each step of this crisis was to get back on level ground, liquidate the bad debt of the past, and go, go on in a more sustainable way. So since the dot-com bubble was the start of all this, what we really needed, unfortunately, and this, this sounds harsh, but was a real recession in 2000 that would have cleared out all that bad debt from the dot-com era. It never got cleared out. We had a, a very short, shallow recession, and we got out of that recession by creating the housing bubble. So with each step, we just sort of make it worse. Did Keynes take into a place, take into account world capital flows like we're seeing today? Well, he, he did. I mean, he was, um, th this is the, the era of globalization that we've had is not the first era of globalization. The first great era of globalization was before World War I, and World War I really brought it uh, to its end. But Keynes grew up in that era of uh, world globalization, so he was very familiar with this. He thought uh, he, his ideas about globalization kept shifting. He was for it. He was against it. He was for treat. He was devotedly for free trade. Then he was against it. Uh, before he died, he was again in favor of free trade. So his ideas shifted accordingly. But he certainly was familiar with it and took it into account. On a relative basis, true, it was it was global, but it was really a European to the U.S. context, was it not? Well, of course, he helped to develop the Brayton Woods monetary system, but then he died shortly after that, so he missed a lot of that post-war reconstruction. But going back to what you're saying about China and India and so on, it, when China and India and these developing countries really became part of the global economy, that was a that had a deflationary impact because their wages were so low. So that meant that prices were going to go down around the world. Uh, what should have happened in the United States is that our prices should have gone down just a little bit every year, 1 or 2 percent. Uh, that would have been the natural effect, and that would have kept us competitive. But instead, the Federal Reserve prevented that by printing so much money that our prices went up. So our inflation was actually higher than it appeared. If you, have, uh, three, if, if you should be having prices decline by 2% and you go up by 3%, then you've really got inflation of 5%. So there was a lot more inflation than it appeared. And one, one of the problems as this new world has developed is that the Chinese, in particular, are not what you would call free, free market oriented. And, and free market is associated with Keynesian or not? No. Uh, Keynes is really the opposite of free markets. Uh, the, the essence of Keynesianism is that he really wanted to control especially the big prices. Interest rates under Keynesianism are completely controlled. Currency prices are completely controlled by world governments, as they are today. Both of them are controlled. And this, this is uh, the, the opposite of free markets. He also wanted to abolish recessions. The trouble with that is that you can't have free markets without bankruptcies. Bankruptcies are, you know, the profit system depends on bankruptcies. It's a My carrot point stick. about capitalism a, a yeah, little Yeah, it's bit. a carrot stick system. You need the carrot, but you need the stick. The, the carrot is the profit, but the bankruptcy is the stick. So that really, uh, Keynes uh, eliminated those really important features of a market system. And so it isn't surprising to me that the market system is not functioning very well when we don't allow free prices and when we don't, at least recently, the Federal Reserve has not allowed recessions. They couldn't stop this last recession, but they certainly uh, they didn't allow one in 2000.
even though we're on different sides of it, the American government and the Chinese government are are both creating inflations, inflation bubbles and busts by taking two different perspectives? And that, that's exactly right. And we've been partners with the Chinese through all these bubbles. That they have been financing us. I mean, there are two ways that the U.S. government can get in debt. We can either borrow money, and we can't get enough from our own citizens because we haven't been saving enough, so we borrow abroad, especially from the Chinese, or we print money. Those are the only two ways that the, U the U.S. government, if it's, if it's run out of tax money, can only pay for things in those two ways, borrow from the Chinese and others, or print money. And during most of this period, it's been borrow, borrow, borrow from the Chinese. The Chinese have been our enablers. They've liked this, this bubble because it's created so many Chinese jobs, and they're not thinking about the long term. They're not thinking about the fact that this is not sustainable. And right now, they're blowing up another bubble as a result. Why do I always attribute to the Chinese mind that they will be around forever and they don't think short term? Um, isn't that interesting? It's, isn't it ironic that, that the Chinese, who I think themselves think of themselves that, in that way, because they've adopted Keynesianism with such fervor, they have become the ultimate short-timers. Short and it may just be that the, that the government in China just figures, you know, we, we can't take a risk on thinking long term. We, we, just a little blip in unemployment there involves so many millions of people without jobs that they just don't think they can maintain political stability without this continual bubble blowing. But it's a recipe for unemployment in the long run. Pick, pick a year in the next three and tell me what it's going to look like. Um, we have borrowed so much money and spent so much money that there's no reason why the economy should look bleak in the next few years. The question is how long we can keep that going. And I, I don't have any way of offering a prediction. All I can say is that this is not sustainable. If you were to gaze into your considerable crystal ball, what would you anticipate will be the kind of event that will create the economic burst when it happens in, as you would predict, in the next three, four, or five years? Well, I'm not even saying three, I mean, certainly, I would certainly expect trouble, let's say, within five years. But there's no way to really predict or forecast exactly when it's uh, going to hit. Uh, all I know is that you can't just keep growing your debt faster than your income forever. I mean, isn't this the basic problem here? And Keynes said you could. He said you could actually grow your debt faster than your income forever. All you have to do is keep reducing your interest rates. He said, as long as people have needs, we shouldn't reduce the amount of debt. You know, some of it was because he, of course, was a great debunker of the Victorians. And if we go back to the 19th century, the Victorians, if you read those novels, the wonderful novels in the 19th century, a lot of them are morality tales about debt. Debt is dangerous. Debt is addictive. Debt can ruin your life. Warren Be careful. Buffett says the same thing. Well, <laughs> he, d he does. But in, in any case, Keynes was a great debunker of that. So he was saying, no, don't worry about debt. That is not dangerous. That is not addictive. Well, I think he, he was wrong. He went way too far, and he's gotten us into trouble. Unfortunately, we're going to have to uh, relearn a few Victorian truths. And again, it's just, just as simple as you can't keep growing your debt faster than your income. I guess I'd like to say you heard it here. Hunter Lewis, where Keynes went wrong and why? World governments keep creating inflation 
bubbles and busts, and we don't have inflation yet. That may be coming. We may be in a mini bubble uh, of the next two or three years, but Hunter Lewis would predict that the bust is coming. Absolutely. Hunter, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, there's a package for you. Bernie Madoff and John Keynes, Brian Ross, Hunter Lewis. This is why you listen to McLaughlin at work, and this is why we're proud to bring you personalities who write about personalities, living and dead, imprisoned or otherwise. Always grateful to Brian Ross, chief investigative reporter for ABC News, Hunter Lewis, my pleasure to have uh, spoken with Hunter now through two of his books. Uh, interesting credentials on both of them to take positions and investigate people like they do. Uh, juxtaposition, Bernie and John. I don't know who's the crook. I don't know who's leading who to where. One guy's in prison, and there, there are people who think that the other guy just got it so wrong that he's led us all astray. Pick your poison. That's what the economy's all about. And if you think that's all just blah, blah, you be in touch with me, McLaughlin at Mac.com, and tell me what the stock market is going to do tomorrow and why. And I'm not interested in where it's come from or why it did what it did. I want to know why it's going to do what it's going to do. Catch me next week, McLaughlin at work. Thanks for listening.